The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to Season 3 of The Anxious Achiever, the show where we look at stories from leaders who've dealt with anxiety, depression, or other mental health challenges, how they fell down, how they picked themselves up, and how they hope workplaces can change in the future. I'm your host, Maura Ahrens-Mealy. I first got to know today's guest through her writing. At the height of the stress of coronavirus this summer, the Black Lives Matter movement took over the national consciousness like never before. And it's still playing out today. It likely will be for some time, as managers, workers, and everyone with a career is grappling with the ways they're affected by race, either as perpetrators of stereotypes, the status quo and unfair systems, or as those who feel the effects of bias and racism. All that's to say, I'm still thinking about the piece that I read by Prisca Neely, her article, I Don't Need Your Check-In Texts. But like all of us, Prisca isn't just thinking about one thing all day at work. She's a new first-time manager with a big new job, and she's someone who works hard to articulate feelings and encourage others to do so. And she has, unfortunately, also felt the burden of being the only. For those of you who heard our episode on the anxiety of the only in season one, you'll already know about the anxiety of being the only person of color or woman or anything else in a room. It's difficult to be an only, and it's a difficult burden to explain to people in the majority why their behavior needs to change. And because we're all just people after all, and we are all constantly saying things that set others off, even when we don't mean to, workplaces are rife with lots and lots of unexpressed feelings. So Priska can help us wade through all of this. She's skilled at asking herself this question at work and turning it into good change. How did this interaction make me feel and how can I do something different next time? It's just one piece of management advice from this new manager that I took away from our conversation. Tell us about your new job and, and why it's, it's kind of a, a big step into a different direction for a reporter like you. Yeah, um, I mean, I've wanted to be a journalist since I was a small child, and I've always um, been kind of drawn to, to leadership. And I've been thinking a lot about working in the South in particular. My, my parents are both from the South, and I've only really worked in big coastal cities. And I think that it's a real responsibility to tell stories in this part of the country that, you know, may not be covered in the same way all the time. And so, yeah, it's a really it's a really exciting opportunity. Um, it's a job that's looking to build collaboration between the NPR stations that are in Birmingham, Alabama, Jackson, Mississippi, and New Orleans and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. So, so to increase the regional coverage here and also get more stories from this region on nationally on NPR. And one of the things that I thought was kind of awesome and also unusual is we spoke earlier and you said that you had always wanted to be in management, like you you wanted to manage people, which <laughs> is 
I think something that we're we're almost we, we're almost not used to hearing people say, especially very highly skilled craftspeople, right, who are so excellent at their craft and have honed it, and and to say, well, actually, no, I want to I want to manage a whole bunch of stuff and and all that mess. It sort of took me aback. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's something that people have talked to me a lot over the years when I was you know pursuing different leadership programs, and you know, people would would say, oh, do you want to focus more? You know, you're really good on air. Do you want to focus more on a hosting track? I really just kind of had to do like, I guess, an audit of what gives me joy. And even when I would be working on a story or, you know, a series that was really impactful, like if an intern asked me for help or if, you know, a new reporter was brought on and I was kind of helping to onboard Mm -hmm. them, like I would just really get this rush from doing that, from like helping other people, from training people and helping other people do their best work. And I think, you know, so much of management is really just about communication. And I think that I have those skills to be able to just have conversations to, you know, to treat people as people and and not just only thinking about like budgets and stories, but thinking about people and their goals and how to help them grow. That's kind of what I've always craved. And I've I've seen it lacking in a lot of the spaces that I've worked in. So I'm really excited to finally have to, to have this opportunity. I think it's a little harder when you're a younger person and you're telling people from the beginning that you want to do that. And they're like, oh, okay, cool. Well, you know, you got to do a bunch of other stuff first. <laughs> the interest is a huge thing because so many people are get into management positions just kind of by default or reluctantly, just because they've been doing something a long time. I mean, that's what I think is interesting. And and, and tying this all back to the show, I, I think that part of the reason why work makes so many people anxious is because a lot of managers may not want to be managers because it's hard and communications is hard. And they'd just rather be out doing their thing, right? And so... Um, I actually love that you're sort of bringing light to the art of management and that it, it, I don't think it should be something that if you just last long and pay your dues, you get rewarded by like a big office and, and a higher paycheck. Because if that's what you want to do, no one's going to be happy. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, when you're when you're working for someone and you can tell that they really just miss getting their hands dirty and making the thing, <laughs> you know, you, it, it affects how you do do your work. You know, you don't feel you can tell you can tell when someone doesn't really want to do it. So I think I think it is kind of an unpopular, a slightly unpopular path <laughs> that I've chosen. And um, I had to think a lot about, you know, what it would mean to not be on the radio anymore, especially as a black woman in public radio. And, and I've done a lot of really important reporting on black maternal health and things like that. And people have been so excited to have me in the field and, and being able to collect those stories. So it was a big decision to think about leaving that and transitioning. But ultimately, I just I just feel like I can have a greater impact, hopefully, in helping to train people and, um, you know, validate people and and get their stories on the right track so that there can be there can be more there can be more people doing what mm-hmm. I've been able to do. Mhm. Mhm. I I first learned about you uh and I don't live in in California and I didn't hear you so much on the radio but uh I read some of your writing um especially writing that you wrote earlier in in 2020 as um 
the Black Lives Matter movement really reached, again, the forefront of the consciousness around George Floyd's death. And you wrote about your experience of white people coming to you to Mm -hmm. check in and say they were so sorry, you must be going through so much, what could they do? And you wrote about it was overwhelming. You you wrote that, you know, basically, I think one of your articles was called I Don't Need Your Check-In mm-hmm. Text. And I have, to, I have to admit, Prisca, that like that made me kind of – I read it in the cut and I seized up because <laughs> I had sent quite a few check-in emails myself and texts to black colleagues and friends. And I thought, oh, God, I've done this wrong. And um, – <laughs> Well, you're not alone. I got I after I after that I got after the piece came out, I got like another wave of like apologizing for the check-in text texts and I was like, "Oh dear. I don't this was not the goal. I was this is really like a public service because it was happening so much and it was just kind of like sparking this rage within me and I was talking to other black friends and they were, you know, hearing from people they hadn't heard from. I mean, I I I understood where it was coming from. I understood the intention. But, you know, the the result and how it felt to be on the receiving end of that just it just wasn't helpful. I totally when I read your piece, it was so after I got over <laughs> my own personal shame and anxiety, I it was so clarifying. And I and I so instantly saw that and um, it made so much sense. And it was just very clear. And, you know, I also got the sense, though, of the sort of weight that you felt and, and in other writing that you've done as as an only mm-hmm. often. You know, we did a show last year um, that was one of my, my favorite shows ever called The Anxiety of the Only. And you've expressed that a lot, that you are often the only or one of very few black, especially black leaders, black senior people. Um, reporters in public media, and that that just puts a tremendous like mantle on your shoulders. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely pressure, and it, it was interesting. You know, with with the check in text, I had conversations with a couple of black people. You know, I was like, asking them if they were getting these texts, and they were like, "Oh no, like I don't know anyone who would do that." And I was like, "Oh right, it's because I work in public radio, and I went to NYU. Like I know a lot of white people." <laughs> and <laughs> and I was like, "Oh yeah, this guess it could be a different experience based on what circles you're in." But there, it did feel like, especially because I was often the only black woman in the spaces that I'm in, it did feel like there was that aha moment, like, oh, my God, Prisca's black. Just realized that this week, like (laughs) thinking about her in that way when it's like, uh, this has been going on for me the whole time, like this experience. And and, you know, that like in the reporting that I've done about black maternal health issues, I was so glad that I was able to tell those stories in a thoughtful, nuanced way that I was able to to connect with people as a black woman. It can often be a burden. And I think it's also a burden for for me, too. Like when I was walking away from that job um, reporting in Los Angeles, it was like, wow, if I leave, like who will tell these stories? You know, mm-hmm. who is going to think about these stories in the way that that I did? Did you feel like you had to answer that question? 
I, I just felt like a lot, not like guilt exactly, but just kind of, you know, I, I had to tell all of my sources personally. It was really exciting because I had this big group of black women in L.A. who were like following my work and were so excited. And I just felt like I could be letting them down um, or that they would be really upset to not have me as that as that reporter that they, they know they could go to when, when things were coming up around those issues. When you are a reporter who's black and you think about stepping away from that to do something else, it it, it, it has been kind of like a, a weight, like, oh, no, oh, no, if, I, if I'm gone, you know, who will do this? But that's where I've come. That's where I've come. It's like there are going to be more people feeling that way and feeling that weight, that burden until there are more people in leadership. I, w- I would love you to talk a little bit about um, something that you that you've written about and you've alluded to um, when you were brought in for a job interview and felt very much like you were sort of there mm-hmm. to tick a box and that they were not necessarily seeing you for your skills or your um, other qualities that you would have brought to the role and you confronted um I guess the the hiring team about it. Yeah, well, confronted. I guess is a nice way to put it. What I, I burst into tears during an interview, um, <laughs> and therefore talked about how I was wow. feeling because I was crying during an interview. Um, so that was very embarrassing. What kind of tears were they? I mean, was it was it like tears of frustration? Just. You've, I've been talking for so many hours and I'm exhausted and frustrated. Like, what mm-hmm. what did the tears feel like? Yeah, it was a combination of those things. It was, you know, it was like I took a day off of work to fly for an interview and I was nervous about getting back. You know, it was it was a lot of um, kind of just overall anxiety about skipping out for an interview. Mm-hmm. It was also, you know, just these marathon interviews where you have to go and sit in on a million things and talk to a bunch of people and then and your your face hurts from smiling <laughs> yeah <laughs> and telling the same stories oh mm-hmm. no well no i can't eat that whatever <laughs> you know whatever comes up oh thanks so much <laughs> you know oh my name story whatever you know telling the same <laughs> the same things and then i got to the end of the day and you know sitting down with the main hiring manager and there's just like this pulling out of the of my resume and like going over different things and asking about you know, if I've had certain types of experience. And I was like, we, you know, we just did this whole day. We we had a phone thing. You know, you reached out to me to apply for this. We had a phone thing. We had a Skype thing. Now I'm here. I thought that my skills and that my growth areas were clear. And like, no, I don't have, you know, this experience. And that's why I was interested in this because I would grow that. But like what I could bring to the team is this other skill that you you guys, you know, don't have. And I just felt like we talked about that so many times mm-hmm. had like the tears rolling down my face and I was just like you know I I just never want to be considered for a job because I'm a black woman like if did you if say I'm, that yeah mm. yeah and the hiring manager said you know I you know I want you to know that's like not what's happening and you know um we considered a lot of people we're like we're really excited that you're here um and and I I just was able to walk them through like here here are the things that have brought me to this point of tears. <laughs> Here are the kind of strange things that were done during this interview process um, that made me feel kind of hyper aware mm-hmm. of my blackness in this space. And kind of, I kind of just offered some feedback, like in the future, if you're bringing someone in, like, please don't do this thing. If you're going to do this, don't maybe do it this way. 
And they were really, they were thankful for, for that feedback. I love that you went from tears to... The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Enlightening them. That feels so strong. Mm. You know, there's so many stereotypes about women crying in interviews that uh, I liked how you flipped it on its head. Yeah, well, I I just... I don't want this to happen to other people. I just feel like I often get end up in situations where I have the tools to be able to communicate what's happening. Similar to that piece that I wrote for The Cut, a lot of people were getting those texts and were frustrated and they were just not responding yeah. to them or, you know, they were mad about it or whatever, or people would people were tweeting things like, you know, I call for a moratorium on these, you know, well-intentioned guilt tinge text from white people like but that wasn't getting to how does this make me feel and how can you do something different so one of the things i also want listeners to learn is how people who understand their emotions and how to communicate effectively to other people how they're there's a lot of pronouns here but how they're feeling and why it matters because again, that's really hard. Communication is really hard. We don't get enough of that, especially as we're becoming leaders. It sounds like you're a person who really is in touch with your feelings and that you have built a process that allows you to say, this makes me feel this way. This is how I'm going to communicate that to the person next to me in a way that they're going to understand it. Yeah, I think it's just kind of my incubation in my in my family. My my parents have um, done like communication seminars throughout my life, and uh, my dad was a pastor growing up, and I was always like sitting in on their the parenting classes that they were doing. You know, mm-hmm. just growing up, that's like what I heard was about the power of communication and how you know the power of words and how words can hurt and words can heal, and just being really thoughtful in communication. And and my dad. Um, wrote a book called the, the the gift of criticism so he thinks a lot about how how to actually mm. um use criticism to receive it and to to give it as a tool but not to not to fear it you know um so much about feedback is is things that we fear so many of the things that happen that are problematic at work at home or whatever is is, is like because of the buildup over time is because we haven't said things mm-hmm. in the moment when they've made us feel uncomfortable. So that's something I've really I've challenged myself to do like when it comes to microaggressions or anything in the office just sometimes I can't find the words in the moment 
to be able to do it, but to be able to come back and mm-hmm. say, hey, uh, that thing that happened earlier today or last week or whatever, you know, I'd love to talk about it more. You know, I have not managed before, but I think about it more than most people. I've been keeping a like a, a, a document called Notes to My Future Manager Self for like the past seven years or something. <laughs> Just whenever something happens that I see people get really hurt by it or I see how meetings break down because of like these patterns like if you bring up like the digital plan in a meeting that's about radio like the meeting will cave well okay so I'm going to put you on the spot what what's your advice for someone who has experienced say a microaggression in a meeting or or, or something has something's been said to them that they have been so rattled by they can't shake it but doing what you've been talking about makes them so anxious that they would rather just stew or leave their job or go hide in a bathroom than have a conversation about it. What is your advice for A, getting in touch with how you feel about it? Because a lot of us, we, we can't put words around our feelings. We just know we're upset. And then turning that into a constructive but appropriate conversation at work. I think it's really hard. And like, I call this the confident revisit, just realizing that if you can't find the words in the moment, Mm. I think so many times we just walk away, especially especially women. I'll see dynamics in meetings or whatever where, you know, men will fire back and be like, no, that's not what I was saying. You know, that's not how I feel that whatever. And I've never been able to do that. And I thought that it was something that I needed to get better at. But I've realized that, like, yes, I do need to challenge myself to, like, say things in the moment if I do have the words. But often when people fire back in the moment, they're not actually saying something that helpful. (laughs) Like, they're just saying something because they're mad. So, like, taking a beat, collecting, you know, knowing if someone touches your hair or says something or or belittles you or, you know, or, or questions you, that if you don't have the words in that moment, that 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 doesn't mean that you can't bring it up again. So, like collect, you know, collect your thoughts, journal about it, call a friend. Like I have a lot of friends who call me to talk through different situations. Um, Like I call my dad a lot and like role play. I've role played difficult conversations with him. But, you know, so bring it up, like telling, you know, telling, sending that email a a day later, a week later. Hey, I'd like to follow up on, on something that happened yesterday. You know, do you have some time? And then just kind of walking through it in a sensitive way practice like really practice and think about what you want people to take away from it try you know avoid using pronouns like you did this to me you know this is like the one area where passive language is really powerful right (laughs) being super passive but like you know when this happened it made me feel this way because i think when people hear like you they can just black out and get super defensive it triggers so much defensiveness at the same time, I want to acknowledge that it sucks that you have to do this. And this mm-hmm. it's a lot of work and a burden also, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure you'd probably rather be spending your time doing something else than rehearsing a difficult conversation over some crappy thing that someone said. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's definitely it's it's challenging when there's another layer of, you know, being an only or, you know, or feeling like you're in a position where you have to have a lot of these conversations more than other people. But you know, everyone, everyone, I think, should be thinking more strategically about, you know, re- revisiting issues that come up because those things do fester. And even in friendships, 
you know, even in friendships, things fester and it does become a confrontation unnecessarily. So, so Prisca, you've, you are someone who's known huge grief. You, you lost your beloved older brother. We also know that you're someone who doesn't shy away from talking about the hard stuff, the big stuff at work. You're going to be, I would assume, walking into an office where people are having, of course, as we all are, lots of feelings in a region that is affected by lots of different things that are scary. Do you have a a sort of management philosophy or a way that you're thinking about helping the people who work for you manage their own grief? And does your experience with grief, with with depression, with, with hard times, anxiety inform your management or how you think about mentoring new people? I mean, I think, yeah, my older brother, Bill, died when I was 13. He was 30. He had a, a heart issue that we didn't know about, and he died suddenly. And he was like like my best friend. Like we were super close, even though there's a big age difference. And I've really only gotten to the point in the last like five years that I could talk about it without 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 bursting into tears but I think that having that experience so early in life um, shaped so much of how I think about everything you know of the reporting that I've done and being able to talk to people about the loss that um, they've experienced and my brother he was um, in the tech world and he had a really promising career ahead of him so there were a lot there were several like high profile articles that were written about him when he died and you know just thinking about what it's like to be on this on that side of things you know there are certain questions that I would never want to ask or ways to approach interviews you know in breaking news situations that I would never do just because I think about people's humanity a lot I think about what people could be going through um you know during this pandemic times in various workplaces it's like I think it's so important for leaders to just you know, keep that in mind that whatever assignment they're giving or or whatever you're thinking about, there's so many things that like any question that you ask (laughs) could have this whole other layer of things behind it. Um, So I think that developing trust without going so far as to be oversharing, you know, that's kind of the line that you have to to be strategic about. Um, But that's something that I was thinking a lot about during the whole check-in text moment where I was getting messages from some white colleagues too, you know, kind of asking how I was doing or whatever. And I was just like, have you ever asked me that before? You know, do, have we had this relationship? Like if you're a manager, hopefully you've talked to someone about kind of how they're doing and how things are going for them during a pandemic, (laughs) you know, aside from, anything that could be going on with like racial unrest in in the country hopefully you've developed that type of trust and like knowing that it's a safe space to bring things up if if you need to take a day if you need to take a half day to just be able to to have to trust your people that they're not going to take advantage of that you know i want to go back well first i want to ask what your relationship with anxiety is I think I'm a pretty anxious person. <laughs> I I I didn't I don't know that I always I feel like it's a more recent thing that that I've identified that but when you know when I think back to how I was even in, in middle school or 
in college, just worrying about things. Um, I, you know, I, I overthink things a lot. I, and it's not even overthinking necessarily. It's just kind of running through different scenarios. That's what makes me good at my job, like to run through, like, if X happens, what will we do? If Y happens, what will we do? It's been interesting because I've been in a transition to a new job and I've been off work for a couple weeks and I'm just like sleeping so well because <laughs> I don't have anything to think about. <laughs> like I don't have any, I mean, I was moving and that was stressful, but it wasn't, um, you know, when I was reporting stories that were close to me, I would lose sleep. Like, like just because, you know, the character, the people are, are in my head running through, did I get this right? Is everything, how are, how are people going to feel about it? Did I, you know, was I sensitive in how I wrote this and how I captured the story? Well, and you did write, you reported a lot about mental health among mothers, among women of color. How did doing that work make you think about your own mental health and and also the intersection of, of race and mental health? You know, so I've done a lot of stories about infant mortality and and black maternal health and, you know, the fact that black babies are twice as likely to die in the U.S. as white babies that black moms are three to three to four times more likely to die from pregnancy related complications. And I don't have children. Um, So doing to know that so much of the research now is telling us that it's about the toll of stress, about chronic stress and the experience of being a black woman and how that translates into health. So that that is that is a scary thing to be reporting on. And I think, you know, it it was also an issue that had touched both of my sisters. And that was another reason that it was kind of a project that I really threw myself into. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I was I was more stressed in doing those stories and in putting together an event. You know, we wanted when I was at KPCC in L.A., we wanted to have an event where black women came um, and we would have this, we had the, a discussion with a doctor and an advocate who had had a personal experience losing a child and um, uh, a midwife and just a really great panel. And we wanted to have black women coming and that's not necessarily the, the mm-hmm. prime uh, public radio audience. And that was one of the most stressful times. Like I had to get a new therapist <laughs> when I was putting together that, that event. I was so stressed. And it was really because I was, you know, I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be good, but it was also just high pressure because I wanted black women to be there. You know, I wanted the audience that we were trying to get this information out to, to actually be served by it. And that was, that was a lot of pressure that I was putting on myself. I put a lot of pressure on myself a lot <laughs> and, and so one thing I've realized is to kind of sometimes lower my expectations because I re- realized that my baseline is is so high that I can like chill a little bit sometimes I think that the worrying about it makes it better and then I have to kick myself and say that that's just my hypervigilant perfectionist anxiety talking <laughs> But it's almost like the worry is the mm. secret ingredient. Well, I, I one thing that I that I've realized is, and I was in this leadership training once, and someone said, you know, if you're worried, write it down, because huh. the thing that's keeping you up in the middle of the night may be something that you need to tackle, or you may get an idea, but just like write it down. Don't just sit there spiraling 
like make a to-do list <laughs> you know put some action items behind behind the worry because you know it, it could it can be productive and then you can start to frame it in a different way you're like okay i'm going to give myself 30 minutes to really think this through in all the different scenarios of how it could go to prevent you know or to to ensure success but recognizing what is in my control and what's out of my control and trying to like be a little bit more sensitive to that um so just writing things down i'm also really into setting alarms i set alarms for like everything mm. <laughs> so that so that i don't forget things like what just like Throughout the day, (laughs) throughout the day, like sometimes I set them before bed and then they go off the next day for things that I truly had forgotten Mm. about. And I'm like, oh, what? What a great idea. Thanks. I I say thanks, Prisca from the past (laughs) for this reminder. (laughs) But but in all seriousness, what we're talking about is is a very proven sort of strategy, both for anxiety management, but it really does help. Um, to give yourself time to worry. And then if, if if writing things down helps you, put it all on a piece of paper, everything, mm-hmm. all your worries, and then take a step back and organize it. And you will see amazing things emerge. I mean, that's I use that strategy often at three in the morning, but yeah. all the time. It just like, bleh. Um, well, so my last question for you is, Knowing all that you know about the impact of stress on on your health, your your own experience and the meta experience of being a black executive, a black woman, a black person in the society, all the stressors of moving, starting a big new job. I mean, you've you've got a <laughs> lot going on. And how are you how are you thinking about your stress and managing your stress as you enter? this big new chapter do you have a do you have a plan for it yeah I think I've been in just attack mode for so many weeks just you know with to-do lists out of control just you know when it comes to moving call movers arrange car put car there put just kind of going through all of that stuff and then now I'm actually in my new place and I'm like oh my goodness I'm I've gotten this job I'm going to start this job soon um and I think I've been dealing with so much of the logistics of just getting here that I haven't put that part of my it really totally engaged that part of my brain yet. Mm. I think I mean I think that something else that's really helpful for me is in those moments of doubt that you know inevitably creep up is just reaching out to the network of people that I have in in my corner just to give to give me pep talks. I have a friend who. It's just like excellent at pep, pep talks and I'll call her and just be like, hello, hello, oh, I need great. you. I'm having this doubt. I'm having this worry. Tell me that I can do this. And she's like, oh, OK. <laughs> Here are the reasons. Here's something <laughs> that you did five years ago that made it very clear to me that, you know, <laughs> that you were on on the right path. But I mean, I, you know, as I said, I put a lot of pressure on myself. So I think also in this this goal and this vision that I have for this job and, you know, this huge responsibility of finally getting this leadership position that I've been working toward. It's a little bit scary because it's like, oh, wow, now I've gotten it. <laughs> and and I'll be able, you know, yep. when you're when you've been managing up for so long <laughs> and everyone is I can't I can't count the number of times that people have said, I can't wait to work for you one day. And like now I will actually have people working for me. And so it's exciting, but it's also like, whoa. <laughs> that I just want you to take a moment, though, and think about the fact that people have said that to you. 
That is not something that people say very often to anybody. Yeah, yeah. A lot of my managers have said that to me. <laughs> That's awesome. So, um, yeah, I think that, you know, I, I'm thinking a lot about my sleep and how, how to not mm-hmm. go back to the waking up in the middle of the night type sleep because I don't enjoy that. But, yeah, I mean, also working from home right now is weird. This is a very right. weird time to start a new job. But I am trying to just, you know, set myself up for success with with all of the people that I have to support me and just like certain lifestyle things. I drink a lot of calming tea. (laughs) (laughs) I love calming tea. Um, And and just, yeah, I mean, I guess believing in myself. (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow, there's a concept. Oh, well, Priska, it's been such a joy. And um, I wish you I wish you all the best. Thanks. This has been really great. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thank you to my producer, Mary Dew. Thank you to the team at HBR and the studio team who make the audio happen, especially in these challenging times. I'm so grateful to our guests for sharing their experiences and for you, the listeners. Please send me feedback if you want to hear. I've gotten some great feedback over the break, which I'll be incorporating. You can email me at anxiousachiever at gmail.com or tweet me at moraam, M-O-R-R-A-A-M. And if you love the show, tell your friends. Subscribe or leave a review. From HBR Presents, this is Maura Aarons-Mealy.